You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Hope everyone's having a great week. Welcome back. You are, of course, listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous. And if you don't know what we're about, I'll break it down real simply for you. Cutaneous is skin, miscellaneous. We discuss various things about skin. But we're, of course, much more than that. We are the Dermatology Residence Podcast, where we help medical students, residents, fellows, even early career dermatologists excel at their current stage of training and beyond. And we've got a great topic today that all those groups are going to want to hear about. We're going to be talking about how to be a speaker for industry, and not only that, how to be a great impactful, fabulous speaker for industry, and nobody better to discuss that than our special guest, Dr. Michael Lewitt, who is board-certified dermatologist in private practice in Chicago. So, Dr. Lewitt, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Really nice to have you here. So, before we start the episode, we want to discuss psoriasis biologics, which could be a whole podcast series in and of itself. There's over 10 FDA-approved biologic therapies for psoriasis. And of course, these are going to show up on the core exam, the basic exam, and the board exam. So we want to give you some high-yield facts to help you ace these questions. And I'm going to start with the pathophysiology of psoriasis. This is very testable because these agents target these certain cytokines. So we have the angina-presenting cell, which releases both IL-12 and IL-23. Now, IL-12 has the P35 and P40 subunit, and the IL-12 will go ahead and activate Th1, which will go ahead and release TNF-alpha and INF-gamma. Now, the other arm is the IL-23 arm, and of course, IL-23 has the P19 and P40 subunit. This will activate Th17, which will release IL-17 and IL-22. So that is very important. Those targets are important, and I just want to run through the agents now and do some quick high-yield board review, starting with the TNF-alpha agents. We want to keep in mind that the two most antigenic agents amongst the TNF-alpha agents are sertilizumab and infliximab. Furthermore, sertilizumab has a potential advantage in the chemical structure, and this is because there's no FC region in the antibody fragment. Therefore, it's safe in pregnancy, and it does not cross the placenta. These are our TNF-alpha agents. So, Dr. Lewitt, what I want to ask you about is the IL-17 agents. And what I want to start with is which IL-17 inhibitors are approved for psoriatic arthritis because it's not all of them. That's correct. So there's uh, currently three FDA-approved IL-17 inhibitors, but the uh, two of those three are FDA-approved for psoriatic arthritis or PSA for short. Uh, Those are secukinumab and ixikizumab. Okay. Awesome. So the only one that's not approved is brodalumab. So can you tell me how the mechanism of action for brodalumab differs from the other two? And what's an extra step that's needed prior to prescribing brodalumab? And why is this? Sure. So uh, uh, brodalumab is a little bit different. So secukinumab and ixikizumab bind directly to the IL-17A, the IgG of I believe one and four off the top of my head for secu and ixikizumab respectively. But bradalumab actually binds to the receptor of IL-17A. So kind of being able to block more of a, a pan IL-17 at a, at a different uh, endpoint. So it inhibits the 17 binding to its receptor and therefore 17 is unable to bind to the receptor. Uh, bradalumab does have an extra step required. Uh, it has a boxed warning for suicidal ideation and is under the REMS monitoring program uh, that both patients and providers and the pharmacy have to be part of in order to d- uh, dispense that drug you know, to a patient. Awesome. So you're really going to keep these 
subtle points in mind when discussing the IL-17 agents. Next, I want to ask Dr. Lewitt, what specific types of infections are most commonly associated with the IL-17 inhibitors? Sure. So I like to break this down. If you have a mouse and you make that mouse devoid of IL-17, you know, that mouse is going to have mucocutaneous candidiasis. Now with these drugs, we are not completely eliminating IL-17 from their body. We're just reducing the overzealous amount that, you know, generally occurs in the psoriatic disease state. But because of that, you know, blockade, you are still getting a higher risk of mucocutaneous candida infections, which could be things like uh, in the sensitive areas, thrush, uh, et cetera, or even uh, honestly just, you know, in, in, a, in a skin fold. Um, rates are still pretty low and infections are mild, uh, but it is something to, to screen your patients for in the exam room. Absolutely. Rates are low and they're mild, but this does come up. And finally, uh, we can imagine a question where a patient comes in, you decide to start an IL-17 inhibitor, and the question center is going to lynch list a bunch of medical conditions. And they're going to ask, which condition should the patient be screened for before starting the IL-17? So what's the answer going to be in that scenario? Uh, hands down, it's going to be inflammatory bowel disease. There's history behind it. I don't know if you're looking for that, but I'll give it to you. But in the initial trials for secukinumab um, and exekizumab, uh, IBD was not an exclusion criteria. So we learned a little bit more about that, and we did see some new onset and exacerbations of uh, pre-existing IBD uh, in patients that had that past medical history. So IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, uh, you know, would be an important history to know before starting a patient on this uh, on this mechanism of action. Yes, that question, that point can certainly show up. Dr. Lewitt, thank you. Let me finish off with the IL-23 agents, and then we'll go ahead and jump into the episode. So we're going to uh, talk about the two subunits of IL-23, and which subunit of IL-23 do the IL-23 inhibitors inhibit? And that's going to be IL-23 has the P40 and P19 subunit, and the IL-23 inhibitors target the P19 subunit. And which IL-23 agent is only approved for injection by a healthcare provider? That's tildrakizumab, and that's um, written in the package insert that it only is to be administered by a healthcare provider. Finally, we have one more IL-12-23 agent, uh, ustekinumab. Important to know clinically and for the exams that this has an FDA approval for a larger weight. So you can increase the dose if the per patient presents with a larger weight. Very important point to know. And I know everyone is probably very uh, overwhelmed and confused about all these agents, but you're in luck. Um, I will link this in the show notes, but I want to let everyone know about the Crutchfield Brownstone Lebwall Quick Access Comprehensive Chart for Psoriasis and Atopic Dermatitis Biologics. It's quick access. It's comprehensive. We'll link it. Please use it as a resource, share it with your colleagues, and we're really happy to uh, help the community, help our fellow dermatologists with this knowledge. So, Dr. Lewitt, that was really great. Uh, no one should miss these questions on the exam, but let's jump into the main part of the episode. So, this is a topic that everybody wants to know about, including me, and it's going to be, how do you become a speaker for industry, which I think is such an awesome opportunity because you get to take a medication, become an expert in it, and then share your knowledge with all your colleagues so they can go out and give the best care to their patients. And the first question I want to ask you is, how do you do this? How do you become a speaker for industry if you have no industry relationships? Well, I guess the 
first answer is develop industry relationships. Uh, you know, what happens, people train in different areas and, and the access to training programs is, you know, high or low, depending on your geography and uh, uh, your potential attendings relationship with the industry. I was very fortunate at my uh, alma mater. I was able to spend a lot of time with industry, uh, form relationships, understand how to go to a meeting, uh, shake a hand. I guess now we bump elbows, depending on which sticker you're wearing at the meeting. Um, but the other thing is, if you find your niche in, you know, in dermatology and um, if we're to bring baseball into this, you could be a utility player who's kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, or an expert. And I, I really, you know, because my mentor was a, was a psoriasis expert, really kind of honed on, on, on asking the community in Chicago to send me difficult cases, to be able to see a lot of patients. And then you get experience with drugs. Um, also, Whenever representatives come into your office, you know, whether they're dropping off samples or pamphlets or patient education, and they say things like, hey, I've got my manager with me today. Do you mind coming and saying hello? And it kind of has a, a, a mutual reciprocal benefit for you and the, the representative. You get to, you know, shake some hands, tell people about your interests. Um, and then the other thing is I, I, you know, never pass up an opportunity to speak, whether it's a, at a conference for uh, you know, APPs or or residents or anything like that, because a lot of times those those programs are sponsored, and then you get industry who hears you out speaking, whether it's on a CME topic, an opinion, uh, and then you get exposure. And when they see that you have good stage presence, whether it's virtual or otherwise, and you interact well, you answer questions well, you know, you don't belittle your audience. Then oftentimes you form that niche. You've shown you can you can speak. And you've shown that you can, you know, develop a, a personal relationship with industry. So that's kind of how I did it. And that was kind of a grassroots way of doing so. And then uh, one thing, you know, leads to the next. I loved how you started that answer. You know, if you don't have industry relationships, then you should develop them. I'm a simple guy. I love simple answers. And you're totally right. But I love what you said, too, about how it takes work. You, this doesn't happen overnight. You have to make the relationships, get yourself out there, meet people after work, go to events. And like you said, any opportunity, no opportunity is too small or you shouldn't belittle any opportunities. Any speaking opportunity that gets your name out there, gets your skills out there, uh, you're able to showcase your skills is really important. How about what do these pharma companies or what do these drug companies look for when selecting their speakers for their products? You know, what makes a great speaker on paper and what do you really want to show these companies uh, your, your, when you bet your, put your best foot forward? So I truly believe when you were out, again, you know, you have to put your company, your industry hat on, but also your, your, your doctor or professional hat on and realize that you are truly a peer-to-peer. So what these pharma companies are looking for are number one, anybody, you know, all of us, thank goodness, who are in this illustrious, you know, profession that was hard to get into, we're all smart. We all have good credentials as a reason that, that we've, you know, been able to come this far. But truly being able to, you know, understand and ex show your experience with a product. Uh, you know, if you've written a, a used a medication one time uh, and you had an anomaly with a patient or you can't describe it. So being able to truly believe in something and use it in your own clinic, knowing that it's helping your patients, being able to be in the exam room with that patient and tell them, hey, this is uh, what the what a box warning might be or what the package insert says, what you might expect, but having a lot of experience with the drug or I should say, and or having been part of a clinical trial, uh, you know, with that company, you've seen the the medication or the molecule at the time before it is or is not FDA approved. You're able to, to discuss that from kind of a day one experience. And I think that so pharma companies want you to understand, have experience, be able to talk about your personal experience with the drug and how it's impacted your patients. 
But also, you need to be a professional. You need to be able to represent that company well, uh, stay on FDA-approved you know, uh, points, uh, be poignant. You know, don't just read from the slide when, you, when you're out there, but being able to present, connect with your audience. And the last thing I'd say what I've really noticed uh, amongst industry is they want to make sure that uh, you respect everybody in your audience. You don't speak differently if a medical assistant comes to a program uh, or uh, a newer provider or a resident or someone that, you know, maybe he's been in the field for 40 years and is unfamiliar with this MOA mechanism of action because, you know, he or she didn't train with it. I think those are some of the, the key attributes that, that companies really look for uh, in, in adding a speaker to the bureau because you are ultimately a reflection of that company, that representative uh, and, and that, uh, that product. Thank you, Dr. Lewitt. This has been such great information. Hang tight for a couple of moments because I have a special message for all of our listeners, and I want to let them know about a lot of exciting opportunities that are coming up. Thanks for an amazing first year of Cutaneous Miscellaneous, and thanks to all the loyal listeners and special guests. I want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season, and I want to wish the residents and fellows taking dermatology call a very quiet holiday season. The song Silent Night should have a whole new meaning to all of you. Remember, it's a season of giving, whether it's a gift or a kind act towards your friends, family, and loved ones. This is the true meaning of the holiday season. Speaking of gifts, I've got one for you. We're so excited to announce that we're continuing in 2023 with season two. So keep listening for more high-yield board review and advice from leaders in the field of dermatology to help you excel in residency and prepare for your life as an attending. Also, don't miss Project LEAD, a website for early career dermatologists one to 10 years in practice. Lots of great info and videos on practice management, industry relations, new treatments, clinical pearls and tips, and so much more. Be sure to check it out and tell your colleagues and attendings about this awesome resource. New content is released monthly. Visit projectlead.health today. Finally, we are pleased to announce our newest in-person conference, Winter Clinical Miami 2023, taking place February 17th through 20th, President's Day weekend, at the Intercontinental Miami Hotel. Lots of great speakers with case-based learning approach, including both medical and aesthetic dermatology topics. And I don't care what part of the country you live in, being in Miami in February is always a great place to be. For the residents, keep an eye out for an opportunity to participate in Rising Derm Stars Miami, where you can submit your work and get an all-expenses-paid trip to Miami, present your work to your colleagues, and get a mentor in the field of dermatology. How amazing is that? Visit fallclinical.health to register and get more information about these programs and more. That's all I have for now. It's been an honor to serve as your host, and you'll be hearing more from me in 2023. Now let's get back to the episode. I wanted to follow up on one thing you mentioned, which was running clinical trials. You mentioned it's important uh, for speakers to be involved in clinical trials with that drug. So does running clinical trials for that specific drug that you might be talking about or any other drugs in dermatology improve your chances of becoming a speaker in industry? I would say yes. And I'll be frank, when I first started speaking you know, for industry or on behalf of industry, I did not run clinical trials, and uh, you know I would kind of usually be in the second tier of providers that were added to a, a speaker's bureau. And I realized, you know, over time that a lot of the uh, providers that were speaking on behalf at the early onset were able to describe experiences that, that you know may 
go three years beyond uh, the FDA approval, and they've got a lot more experience. So um, it wasn't just because of that, but it piqued my interest. And that's why, you know, during kind of the beginning of the pandemic, I opened my clinical trials unit, had a little extra time, uh, you know, due to obviously lack of volume and whatnot. And um, and now it actually becomes reciprocal for the company and for you, because not only do you, you know, get to talk about something from the very beginning, if it does ultimately become FDA approved uh, and your experience with it, but also when a company sees that you can portray a message I don't want to use the word reward because I want to you know, remain professional and uh, compliant here, but they will, you know, instill trust in you and in your facility. And you, you, when there's new innovation or new indications, they've seen you've used the medication, you've done it from the very beginning, you might get an additional trial to your site for a new indication. For example, while we're on the psoriasis ball game, if somebody wants to look for a special site, scalp, face, palms, soles, nails, uh, pummel planter, things like that. Uh, for a drug that, that that maybe was just plaxerized just before, uh, again the uh, the relationship keeps turning and burning. That's that's right. It's a really great point. You know, industry and physicians they're like left foot, right foot. I think about sometimes because we can't progress without the other partner. And like you said, if you are looking at a drug, looking at a special site, you notice something in the trials, you notice something in your own patient population. If you have that relationship, you can say, hey, I'm thinking about this. And then maybe a new indication, a new trial, a new idea moves forward and ultimately benefits the patient population. Is that right? 100%. Yeah, it all it all boils down to the patient. And, uh, you know, if you can, whether it's an uh, investigator initiated or an IIT, uh, you know, or something that's sponsored, you know, it, it gets down to what you're seeing in that intimate setting of the exam room of, hey, you know, this patient or that patient or these patients need uh, need help in that specific discipline. And uh, uh, industry is, again, your, your uh, right arm, left arm, whatever analogy, I think you used foot a second ago. So we'll keep the appendage analogy going. That works. Right hand, left hand, left foot, right foot makes no difference to me. Just want to ask you briefly um, about the ethical, you know, medical legal principles. So can you consult for one company, but serve as a speaker for another? And in that same vein, uh, can you become a speaker for industry while working at an academic institution that has rules about working with industry? How do you navigate that? Sure. So first and foremost, I'll answer your first question. Yes, you can You can work for multiple companies. You need to, again, I try to remain ethical as possible. Uh, you know, I'm not one night speaking for one, the next night for the other, and, and you know, and telling audience different things. As a peer-to-peer, what I try to do is, is give the data, again, not reading line for line, slide for slide, but give the data. And then as far as I'm able to stretch it without crossing any ethical or compliance guidelines, I'll you know, tell people this is how I use it in my clinic. And I truly believe, you know, if you're only speaking for one company and you were only using one drug on your patients, your patients are going to be missing out on the plethora. I think you said, you know, 10 FDA approved biologics just for psoriasis, again, my area of clinical interest and passion. Uh, so absolutely you can, but you just need to make sure that your your message remains altruistic and you're really focusing on the facts and then bolstering that with with your clinical experience. And then the second question, can you become a speaker for industry while working in an academic uh, or university-based practice? That all comes down to your contract. I uh, am currently private practice with academic affiliations, but there are some academic institutions that have a strict, you know, no-no policy. There are some that say yes, but you have to give us a cut. You know, a, a lot of these uh, times you will uh, be, be paid or compensated by the industry for your time, effort, and expertise. And uh, if you have a contract with certain universities or hospital systems, they may, wait, so, may want some of that, or they may cap how much you can or can't do that is outside the uh, cap constraints of the industry. Um, 
of their contractual obligation. So it can be done if you're going to, if you think you might want to do this and you're signing a contract with an academic or university-based system, it's good to kind of express your your desire to do that. Uh, but it can, again, benefit the, the institution as well if they, you know, have, if you've got more podium time, whether it's local virtual or, or uh, actual podium. Sure. So again, some key points you just mentioned, maybe bring it up earlier rather than later in your negotiations. And it all comes down to the contract. You know, I'm the type of guy that gets a document. I, I zip through it, sign it onto the next thing, but you're really going to want to pay attention to these subtle details. And a few episodes ago, we had a guest who was a, a physician, dermatologist, a lawyer. We talked about medical legal principles dermatology residents have to know about, and he talked about contracts. So everyone who has not listened to that, that's an episode you don't want to miss. So Dr. Lewitt, this has been awesome, but I want to move to the next step now. So people who are listening, who maybe have already been in practice, who are already speaking for industry, what advice do you have for them on how to become a great, impactful speaker that everyone loves? And, and maybe some tips on memorizing the slide deck, because there's so many details in these slide decks. Sure. So I think that actually comes down. Every one of these companies or industry requires an annual, at least annual training, sometimes more frequent if there's new data that pops out or a new indication. I do recommend, even though it's not always you know conducive to your schedule, is to go to the live training. Uh, not only will you learn a lot from the folks that are up on stage presenting, but you're going to learn a ton from the person or you know or, or person sitting next to you at the table because you're going to have multiple different uh, you know levels and years of your decades of experience. So some of the dialogue at those trainings because you're kind of able to go you know off label talk about things obviously not in your presentations, but you're able to really really delve deep. So that's the number one tip I'd recommend. Two, practice. You know uh, you can't obviously you know, everybody has to. Uh, you know, be compliant, but I'll practice in front of my dogs when I get home. And I really work for the slide deck. A lot of companies will give you the FAQ slides or frequently asked questions slides that they've gotten. And I develop my own FAQ for every deck that I'm a part of. And I write them down uh, and, I, and, I, and I go through them and I have answers and different answers. Uh, and then also, I think I've said this three times since I've had the privilege of being on here with, uh, uh, with you all is that don't, don't just read the slides, slide for slide. You need to be compliant. You can't go off label. There'll be a lot of stress on that, and there's always a compliance or an attorney in the uh, in the room when you're training. But be able to again, as much as you're able to share your experience, say things like, "In my opinion, you know this, this, and that, X, X, and Y," and that's really, really been helpful. Um, and then I try to include everybody in my presentation. A little more difficult virtually, but when I'm there, I always include, "Hey, do you see that?" Or when we get to the, for example, the uh, the section in, in a slide deck on the coupons and, and access. I always look to, hey, do we have any biologic coordinators in the room? And what's been your experience with that? Um, so I think those are some of the, the best tips and tricks is uh, I'm able to do. And also you want to establish yourself as a peer, but also establish yourself, establish yourself as an expert in the field. And there's a reason why you're up there. And uh, again, without being snooty, snobby, or, uh, um, you know, or, or losing modesty, um, I think that helps as well. Yeah, that's a really great piece of advice. You know, be a peer, uh, but also be an expert. And if you can balance those wells, balance those roles well, then I think that's the mark of a great speaker. And it's pretty funny. Your dog must be a great dermatologist hearing all these lectures. They probably know more than I do. <laughs> They're, uh, they, they hear me play guitar as well. And I promise you that doesn't, uh, that doesn't help their ears much. But. <laughs> well, if you see a dog sitting at the next dermatology board examination, you know it belongs to Dr. Lewitt. <laughs> That's correct. All right. So next I want to ask, you know, if an audience member asks a question, you don't know, you don't know the answer to it, how do you handle that? 
That's a great question. It actually brings up a point that I forgot with your last question on memorizing a slide deck, and that is to form a relationship with the medical science liaison for each company. A lot of times after I've reviewed uh, you know, my deck with you know, uh, Mr. Bones and Monroe, my two pups, I'll, I'll go back and I will uh, kind of even practice a few slides that I don't completely understand the message with a medical science liaison. So now that I jump into that next question, how do I handle an audience's question uh, when I maybe don't know the answer is two things. Number one, you got to break them apart. Number one, is it an on-label question that maybe you just don't know? If it is an on-label question that you don't know, then I will say something along the lines, and I'll be honest, again, you're an expert up there, but you're also a human being. You, you know, if you know, you can't memorize every little bit of you know these trials that maybe have lasted years. I'll be honest. Hey, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But I tell you what, if you give me your email or your cell phone after, I'll talk with the medical team, and if it remains an on-label question, you know, I'll contact you after. If it's an off-label question. Uh, and you don't know the answer, you can do the same thing. Hey, we'll contact outside. But the best thing is to say, you know what? We've got a representative from you know X company here. I don't know that answer either. And it is not an on-label question. So why don't we file a, a, a medical inquiry and they can get back to you you know, as quickly as possible. Uh, but I can't discuss that here. So those are kind of the two ways. You, you have to have humility in this job. You cannot you know, I, I know some of the some of the folks in the fall clinical board. They feel like they just know everything. Uh, you know, they're wizards, they're gods to us. But uh, everybody, there's always a, a gap where you don't memorize every little bit, and uh, it's okay to admit that. Again, it, it re- retains and maintains your credibility. You just relieved a lot of anxiety for me because I always get nervous about those types of questions. But I think what you said there was awesome about involving the MSL and being honest and being humble. Dr. Lewis, this has been an awesome episode. I think you wasted no words. Everything you said was super helpful to me and my colleagues. But I've got one more question. And if you listen to these episodes before, you know I love food. And I know you practice in Chicago. So I want to ask you, where is the best spot to get deep dish pizza? Oh, my God. Such a polarizing question. So, you know, I'll be honest. I'm from St. Louis originally. So I love thin crust, too. And I know Emo's is. So, but in Chicago, if you were to visit... uh, among the big three, which is Lou Malnati's, Giordano's, and uh, Gino's East, I like Lou Malnati's. But if you're a true tourist in Chicago, you have to hit up Pequod's Pizza. And if they, uh, uh, if, you, if you send it back because it's burnt around the, the perimeter, they'll send it right back to you. It's the way it's supposed to be. Okay, so we've got thin crust, we've got deep dish. And, and what is your favorite kind of pizza? Uh, honestly, hand-tossed. I like it right in the middle. But uh, again, Pequod's in Chicago, if you need deep dish, that's uh, it's quite the experience. But uh Come during a warm month because you don't want to wait outside. Okay, I'll visit you uh, in the springtime. We'll enjoy some deep dish and we'll catch up again. Thanks again, Dr. Lewitt. Appreciate your time and advice. This has been a really helpful episode for me and my resident colleagues. Thank you for the opportunity. Money.